want God throughout the day, every single day. That's what we're trying to figure out today. So, if you're ready, turn to Isaiah 6. Turn there now. And as you turn there, I want to explain to you my motive for today's message. We already read the passage. We're going to go through it verse by verse. But my motive in today's message is rooted in a corrective word that I had received about heaven, that I read about. That is that heaven isn't our final destination as much as our final destination is the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven isn't heaven for the sake of having no trials, for the sake of having no tears and no more sin. What is the definition of heaven? Being with God, enjoying God's presence, seeing Jesus face to face as I've had faith my whole life. If it's just heaven, then then it's just no different than any other religion. But no, we worship our triune God. We want to see Jesus. We want to enjoy his presence. For so long, it was just, I just want to go to heaven. Just get me out of this world, right? Let me get away from my sorrows. But that's missing the point. The point is to enjoy God's presence. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ by faith. To die is gain. To see Christ face to face. We went over Psalm 16, which says, In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand treasures forevermore. Isaiah 6 is a familiar passage as we read it together already. I think a good summary of the entire chapter is found in the passage that Dean had read, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Describes the heavenly throne room that you could also read about in Ezekiel or in Daniel. I find it interesting that that in Daniel's account, in one of his visions of the Lord, he, he was so tired he had to lay down on his couch for a week afterwards. And just couldn't even be. He couldn't even do anything. So it's a, it's a, it's a real reality that we need to tune into, recognizing that it's not casual, but that it's very, very serious. Before we go through Isaiah 6, I want to bring up C.S. Lewis, because he's somebody who understood heaven in a very confident, faith-like way, as he is somebody who would read passages like Isaiah 6, he recognized this is reality, motivated him to write works such as the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, whether you've read it or watched the movie, where he just draws out the reality of heaven. An imperfect analogy maybe we could use is that it's kind of like a virtual reality headset, that earth is like a virtual reality headset. It's not a perfect analogy because what happens on earth really does matter. I'm not getting all platonic on you, okay? What everything you do on earth matters for all of eternity. But too often our eyes are focused on earth, on this virtual reality, if you will. When the reality is found in Christ, the reality is found in heaven. Too often we're looking down when we should be looking up. I've always been encouraged by the Puritans' theme that on the Lord's Day, we take both eyes and look at the Lord. Look towards heaven. And during the week, we're called to put one eye on heaven and one eye on earth. I think it's a helpful and encouraging analogy. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of works. You could read his screw tape letters. These are short works. They're almost only about 150 pages. It's very entertaining. 
where he goes through these imaginary conversations between demons that are trying to get at the saints. It's very enlightening. You could also read his Mere Christianity, which is more of one of his direct works. It's really an apology or an apologetic work. Very direct. He wrote this during World War II. They were originally chap, chap, their chapters were originally segments in radio broadcasts during World War II. When people are asking lots of questions about heaven and reality and death and suffering. I want to read to you just one excerpt from Mere Christianity. He says, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some would think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, for example, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. Some examples, of course, are the apostles themselves, who set on fire the conversion of the Roman Empire. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade decades before America did all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become ineffective at times. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. After reading the book of 1 John as a basic of the faith, I highly recommend Mere Christianity. There are some tenets in there that will just hold you fast to keeping your eyes on God in times of trial. It's short, it's very introductory, it's very easy to read, and very basic, very memorable. But before we get to Isaiah 6, I want to mention one more book that C.S. Lewis wrote, which I recommend the most to you today. Not as popular, but very in line with something that he would have written after reading passages in Revelation or something like Isaiah 6 about heaven. It's a book called The Great Divorce. Nothing really about marriage, per se. It's about the realities of heaven and hell. It's a short book, only 100 pages. It's written in the form of a story of people taking a bus ride sort of on their way to heaven and hell. Very imaginatory, okay? It's, it's called The Great Divorce because it's written in response to somebody who talked about um, the marriage of heaven and hell. It's, it's a heretical work about there being no difference between heaven and hell. It's horrible. That uh, was written by the French in the 1700s. If you know history, it makes sense. Um, so he titled this The Great Divorce. He originally wanted to title it Who Gets to Go Home? And it's a book about the reality of, of, of heaven and hell and describes heaven especially. And he presents it in such an abstract, confident way that, that for me, I had recommended it to a lady once uh, who was a mom. This was about 25, 30 years ago. Uh, her child had died at the age of seven, drowning in a pool in Florida. It's not totally uncommon in Florida, and it's a freak accident. This, this family went to our church. And I think it was a year or two years, five years, something after that child's death. Her name was Kelsey. Uh, I was, had the privilege to lead a small Bible study uh, with the family and some friends on, a, on a, just a barbecue um, weekend, just hanging out, and we wanted to have just a memorial remembering when little Kelsey had died, recognizing that this is a real grief. 
it was just a short devotional, and it was a good time of just admitting that loss. And then I gave the mom this, this book, The Great Divorce, and she thanked me for it later. And I commend it to you as well. It's a short book that really explains the realities of heaven and hell. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Let's dig into Isaiah 6. Knowing that, first of all, grace and mercy are required to view God's beauty. And the very first couple words in Isaiah 6, we see that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Well, this is kind of a preview of what's coming up in verses 6 and 7, knowing that his sins are atoned for, that he is forgiven. How on earth could he see the Lord except for grace and mercy? It's given to him before he even knows it. You can't see the Lord except by grace, by mercy, through the forgiveness of sins offered in Christ. And as the Old Covenant saints Sorry, as the New Covenant saints look back to Christ's death on the cross, so do the New Covenant, Old Covenant saints look forward to Christ's death on the cross. The Old Covenant saints are saved through the New Covenant. Isaiah saw the Lord. Now there's a contrast here, set up here with the second half of Isaiah 6. Because there's a whole lot of people in Israel who are not seeing the Lord. Isaiah saw the Lord. We read about that for seven verses, eight verses. Then the description is given of those who do not see the Lord, starting in verse 9. The people who are keeping on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. If you see the Lord, if you behold the beauty of God and His holiness in His Word, it's because He's enabled us by His Spirit to see Him. Jesus explains this in Matthew 13. Just listen. You can turn there if you want. But in Matthew 13, the great chapter of of parables that Jesus is telling, He explains why He teaches in parables which to me and you are easy to understand because we have the Spirit of God inside of us. They make sense to us. We're stopping long enough for an hour on Sunday mornings to say, teach me God's Word. We're reading God's Word. Teach it to me. But there are those who don't want to stop, who don't want to consider their own ways, who don't want to take God's Word seriously. And that's what Jesus is describing. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. That is, understanding the Old and the New Testament based on the primary teacher of the Holy Spirit. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case... The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, and here it is, straight from Isaiah 6. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, the Old Testament word for repentance, turn, do a 180, and I would heal them. 
But rather, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Those modern-day Israelites of the Pharisees are rejecting Christ, as the Israelites rejected their prophet back then. There is condemnation coming to Israel in Isaiah chapter 6. It's in the year that King Uzziah died. This is roughly one generation before the northern kingdom died, passes out and is conquered by the Assyrians. Roughly two or three generations and the southern kingdom will be destroyed by Babylon sent into captivity for 70 years. Their judgment is here. It's slowly, it's, 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 they're being warned in order to repent. But there are those who hear. And we read Isaiah 6 as New Covenant Christians, as people who have the Spirit of God inside of us, as people who do understand God's Word. Listen to the conclusion of John's letter, his first letter, explaining how we see the beauty of God because we understand, because we've been given the Spirit inside of us. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. He's given it to us by the Spirit so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then the next phrase is reminiscent of all the Old Testament kings and the Israelites not following His ways. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't be like those who don't see and don't understand because they're distracted with the things in this world. They're not looking heaven-bound. And so we praise the Lord that He has given us grace and mercy to see Him by faith now and in sight one day in heaven. Verse 3 does describe the throne room. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of His glory. The Lord is seated on His throne. He is in charge even though evil is in this world. God is orchestrating all of history for whose glory? His glory. Using even evil circumstances for His good. But I think it's also describing ultimate reality in the fact that ultimately it will be the new heavens and the new earth. Or there will be nothing contra God. Everybody will be focused on Him in the new heavens and the new earth. Where we, even, we will even be a kingdom of priests where we get to enjoy His presence in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 4 says, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. We see that grace and mercy comes only by receiving His word by faith, by hearing His voice. There was a voice that was speaking. And repentance is only possible by God's voice calling you to repent. We have His voice written in front of us with 66 books, with the Word in front of us and the Spirit of God inside of us. Know that when calling is used in the Scriptures, the majority of the time it's a calling unto salvation. And here we have, described in just a moment, purification of sins, a foretelling of the forgiveness offered in Christ. 
But before we get there, we have Isaiah 5, where he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the God Almighty. As we gaze on heaven, as we gaze on Jesus, it can become uncomfortable. Even more than that, we recognize that we are undone. He is a holy God. Isaiah has a problem. I am unholy. And I live among a people that is unholy. Not only my own sins, but the sins of church, the sins of the society. He is undone. You could translate that as being cut off. I would understand that to be being just short of dead. Kind of like Israel was when they experienced the holiness of God on Mount Sinai at the giving of the verbal law, seeing a holy God then after two community sins and an individual or an individual sin, a Sabbath breaker is executed. You have Korah's rebellion in number six, 50 chapters of sin with 15,000 people dying of a plague. Then they see Aaron's bud, Aaron's uh, staff bud. And the people are seeing the holiness of God, and here's their response. And generally, these people have a hard heart. People of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, shall die. Are we all to perish? They recognize He is a holy God and that they are not. Eventually they tell Moses to be their mediator, to talk to God and to veil your face. We know that Moses is not a good enough mediator we need a permanent mediator, a perfect mediator, Jesus Christ. There's a third day song that says, Show me your glory. It's a great song. But what is Isaiah's response to seeing the glory of the Lord? A little bit similar to Daniel's. Just, Daniel just didn't leap for joy. He lay down on his couch for a week and was like, Whoa. Silence. Isaiah's response? Not worthy. Not only me, but I live amongst unclean people. I remember a conversation between a, a young man and, a, and an older man. And it was Monday morning, and the old man said, Missed you at church on Sunday. And the young man said, Well, I just wasn't feeling good. The old man looked him in the eyes, seeing right through it, and said, You mean you partied all weekend and didn't want to look God in the face? And the young man just hung his head. Yeah, he was unrepentant about his lifestyle. He didn't want to go see God because he didn't want to give up his lifestyle. So when we confront a holy God, he confronts our sin. And there's a great hurdle to overcome. So we need grace. We need grace. But listen to me this. We are not yet to the duty of seeing God's beauty. We're not yet to the duty of obeying Him and going on mission. You, you, can't, you have no duty to see God's beauty. No duty. You can't get there on your own. You can't try for it unless you first are given grace. You can't behold His beauty. You see how it starts out. Isaiah saw the beauty of the Lord. He didn't ask for it. He did respond to it eventually by saying, I will go. 
but we can't miss the grace and mercy to view God's beauty. That's especially highlighted in verses 6 and 7. And the reason that we are given grace and mercy is the purity offered us in Christ. The forgiveness that is illustrated in this coal being pressed on Isaiah's lips. One of the seraphim, a servant of God, an angel, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. How do we know that Isaiah has in mind here that Christ is the one who takes away our sin? Well, because we have like, what is it, like 66 chapters of Isaiah. The last 25 or so from 40 on are all about hope. All about the promise of God loving us. But listen to just two or three chapters away in Isaiah 7. Familiar words that are read around December. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Chapter 9, entitled, For to us a child is born. Listen to some excerpts. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Knowing that we have the entire um, scriptures in front of us, I want to also read to you from a couple passages in Hebrews 9, describing in detail what Isaiah would have prophesied by that coal touching his lips. Knowing that it is Christ who offers us that forgiveness. Listen to Hebrews 9, just a few verses. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the Holy of Holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of unclean persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, so that those who are called, called unto salvation, may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Then listen to a summary of the entire book of Hebrews, getting to the heart of grace and mercy being needed to view God's mercy, to view God's beauty. Listen to Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And here's the key verse for us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We are able to approach His throne by grace and mercy. And we have a new covenant, humbled confidence to approach God. What is new about the new covenant? It's closeness. It's His presence. We've already looked at Psalm 27.4 saying the one thing that I ask of the Lord. You're familiar with Psalm 42.1 and 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for God. When can I go and meet with my Savior? Whether individually or corporately. Then we move on to the duty that we have to tell others of the beauty of God. The voice of the Lord comes again to Isaiah. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Us being the triune God. As God said in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. Here I am. Send me. Go to this people. Then you have the whole message of Isaiah proclaiming truth. Proclaiming that God is holy and that we should repent of our sins. We have a duty to obey to go on mission very intentionally, to send people on mission. But also, while we're going to be on mission, to tell others of the beauty of God. And you can't tell others of the beauty of God unless what? You've beheld His beauty. And it is all by grace. Let's move today to some applications. Let's return to our question, how do I have a more frequent heavenly-mindedness and gaze at Christ and His glory as we even see in Isaiah 6? First of all, let me say it's not easy that it takes work. It takes time. It's not like going to your favorite restaurant and just ordering. It's more like going to the grocery store to prepare an entire meal. And as we go through these applications... Many of them are familiar to you. It is all by grace. It is all by grace, even in your efforts. The good deeds that we do, God has prepared in advance for us to do. We're going to come back to Mr. Blaise Pascal. There we go. First, we look to the example of Jesus and the message of Jesus. The example of Christ in the Gospels is found by your recollection of them, by as a regular part of your spiritual disciplines, you go through one of the four Gospels and read the examples of Christ. And you see that even during His trials, He was looking to God. You see that even while He was on the cross... He was looking to God. He said seven things on the cross. They weren't curse words. They weren't complaining. They weren't bitterness. They weren't whining. They were looking to God in His Word. How did He start out His his ministry? By being tempted. And as He quotes Deuteronomy 7, 8, and 9, 
Back to his tempter. The example of Christ is focused on the Scriptures. Then we look to the message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33, this basic founding verse for us that says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Everything else will come after that. In order to be heavenly minded, we of course take to heart the Lord's day. A day of worship and a day of rest. Expecting by faith to be filled afresh with His Word and His Spirit. Through the preaching of His Word, through the celebration of the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We pray for ourselves. We pray for the pastor who is preaching. We pray for our worship leaders and our worship team that they would have a conscience that is clean, that they would be filled with the Spirit as they lead us. We take to heart the fellowship of the believers, knowing that in 1 John 4.12 it says, no one has ever seen God. And then paraphrasing it, but the closest you come to seeing God on earth is seeing the body of Christ loving one another. As we, as we um, go about our faith together, carrying out the spiritual disciplines of serving, having retreats together and in our, on our own, Praying with the saints. Praying on our own. Reading works like C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Listening to the Christian music. I can't wait to listen to Toby Mac's new album. I think he's like 63 by now. I mean, we think of that guy as like 30, but... <clears throat> not that 63 is old, right? Making sure that journaling is a part of your faith journey and asking yourself, what hindrances are in my life keeping me from being heavenly minded? Let me suggest two. Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, has a chapter on worldliness where we just go along with the world. Where we don't, we'll call somebody out on, on carnal, obvious sin, but on some earthly sins, some worldly sins, we just kind of accept it. We should be calling each other out saying, hey, without being legalistic, going to them with the word, first of all, going to ourselves and our own journals and our own spirit, how am I too worldly? What's keeping my gaze with two eyes on earth during the week instead of one eye on heaven? Going back to Matthew 13, thinking of the worries of this world. Choking out the seed of the gospel that was planted in a heart. It's one of the strongest warnings I find in the scriptures. In Matthew 13, it describes a lot, lot, three lost people with the different seeds. And it says that the seed of the gospel was planted in their heart. And when you read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, you see people on their way to heaven confident because the seed of the gospel was planted in their heart. And they know it all. They don't see Jesus as sweet because the seed of the gospel in their heart never took root. And when those weeds are choking out that, that seed, these are lost people. When it happens to a believer where the gospel seed has taken root and is bearing fruit, what do we do? We chop it out. We repent of it. We confess of it. We make plans to, to change the patterns in our lives. And so we read not only the example of Jesus, we also look to the message of Christ.
I want to conclude today by looking at something. If you'll bring up uh, that one slide for me. And the next one, there we are. I want us to look at uh, Blaise Pascal as an example of somebody who was very heavenly minded. He was a very deep thinker from about 400 years ago. Indeed, one of the first mathematicians. Um, he invented the first mechanical calculator about the size of a, a large Kleenex box. I think there's some still on display in a museum over in Europe. But he was also a Christian who thought deeply about the faith. He was brought to faith and influenced by his sister, who followed this, work, this uh, movement called Jainism, a mostly pretty serious movement after God. You may have heard of Pascal's Wager, which oftentimes comes down as something as simple as try God for 30 days and if, see if he works. If it doesn't work, you haven't lost anything. It's not exactly what he's saying. He's got two books that are just his notes. He never published a book because he died before he was able to publish. But we have two of his, his notes, kind of his journals, his thoughts. His main emphasis is that Christianity is a reasonable belief system. Being religiously occupied is a worthwhile pursuit. He wants you to ask the question, how would you spend your time? If there is an eternity, why would you ever be occupied with trivial pursuits? He understands that man is fallen, that our condition is generally um, observed as bored and anxious. Man is nothing but a subject full of natural error that cannot be eradicated except through grace. Nothing shows him truth on this earth. Everything deceives him. He's going to get to hope here in just a minute. We have ourselves in a miserable condition. And so to keep ourselves from thinking of our miserable condition and our own sin, we often divert ourselves and distract ourselves. He says diversion is what humans do to keep from thinking about what is truly important. It, describe, it describes our inerrant addiction to distraction. We will go to great lengths to avoid thinking hard thoughts or confronting hard choices. And here's a great, great quote from him. He says, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not how, know how to stay quietly in his own room. Matthew McConaughey, in his, um, in his uh, biography, Green Lights, he claims to be a Christ follower. I'm not going to judge him. It's a fun book. He says he goes on spiritual retreat occasionally. Um, he has the, he has the you know, privilege of doing that. And he's in solitude for days at a time. He said it's the hardest thing in the world. But we would do well to go on a retreat, to spend not just an hour in the morning or an hour a week in prayer, whatever it may be, to spend that time alone, but we're so distracted. To summarize Blaise Pascal, he says, to be on the path toward God, you must ignore the temptation for diversions. That's an ongoing battle that takes a lot of fighting, a lot of recalibrating, depending on the body of Christ, to point out where those distractions are. This uh, piece of paper, this manuscript you see on the screen was found in Blaise Pascal's uh, jacket lining when he died. He had it sewn in there. And what it is, is it's describing for him a religious experience. A man who is saturated in God's word, 
I want to read it to you, highlights of it in English, and encourage you to write your own version of what Blaise Pascal called fire. To write your own version of a few sentences and a few scripture verses that you rewrite every couple weeks to recenter your mind on God. His goes like this, fire. This stuff only makes sense to him. That's just your own scribble-scrabble, your own spiritual life will mean a lot to you. Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, and peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. Complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. May I not forget your words. Amen. I like this phrase that says, renunciation, total and sweet. He is beholding the beauty of Christ as we have in the past and as we by faith look forward to in the future. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank You for the beauty that is the Gospel. I thank You for the first moment that each of us in here had seen the beauty of the Gospel, whether it's for today or whether it was decades ago. Thank You for forgiving ugly sinners such as us. Lord, You took trash and turned it into treasure. You turned us into Your inheritance, and You are also our inheritance. I pray that we would behold Your beauty every Sunday as we gather as a church, that we would always behold Your beauty before we go out and proclaim it. I pray this in Your name always. Amen.